and welcome to the Healthy Habits, Happy Homes podcast hosted by the Guelph Family Health Study. If you're interested in the most recent research and helpful tips for a healthy, balanced living for you and your family, then this podcast is for you. In each episode, we'll bring you topics that are important to your growing family and guests who will share their expertise and experience with you. Our quick tips will help your family build healthy habits for a happy home. Welcome back to the Healthy Habits, Happy Homes podcast. I'm Lisa Tang. And I'm Sabrina Douglas. And this week on the podcast, we're excited to be chatting with fellow PhD student Amar Leila about his PhD work and role with the Guelph Family Health Study. Amar's work is focused on family food skills, food waste, and family-based health interventions. Welcome to the podcast, Amar. Thank you for having me. Um, Maybe we can start off with you telling us a bit about your education background and your role with the Guelph Family Health Study. Sure, yeah. Uh, I, I do have a bit of a long story, but I will keep it short. Um, so I moved into Canada right after high school. Uh, we used to live in uh, the United Arab Emirates. And so we moved right after high school back in 2012. I started my bachelor's in science at Waterloo and I wanted to become a pharmacist for some reason. Um, that didn't work out. And so I was looking to transition into something that was... Uh, Still sciencey, but just more to my interest. And I found that, you know, Guelph is one of those universities who has, uh, you know, that has a nutrition program as a bachelor's rather than an, a minor, which was the case in Waterloo. So I, uh, I applied to the nutritional sciences um, program at the University of Guelph, specifically the nutraceutical and nutri- nutritional sciences bachelor's. You know, I found that everyone has a bachelor's. And so I said, you know what, maybe we should continue and do a master's. Uh, And, you know, again, I did that in Guelph. And then even in my master's, I was I was saying I was telling myself, like, there's so many people are getting master's that this, you know, it just might not be that special of a degree like five, ten years from now. And so um, and, you know, obviously I was interested in research. It's not just like career uh, outlook, but I was actually interested in research. And so I decided, you know what, we should continue and do a PhD. And because I love Guelph so much, my PhD obviously is also in Guelph. And so, you know, I found myself in during my the end of my undergrad with professors who are part of the Guelph Family Health Study. And so my master's was uh, in the Guelph Family Health Study as well. And then my PhD as well uh, was with the same, you know, amazing research group. Thanks so much for sharing, Amar. Um, I'm curious as to what inspired you to want to pursue research focused on families and nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, so towards the end of my undergrad, I found myself interested in research and I would thank the TAs that I had. Uh, it was it was pretty obvious from the recommendations they gave me that I need to apply to labs in, in the university and just try to do research with those labs as an undergraduate research assistant. And so I found myself doing animal work. Um, but, you know, while I did enjoy it, I didn't quite enjoy it as much as I thought I would. And uh, at the time, there were, you know, research seminars going. And so I found myself in a seminar for now Dr. Megan Racy, who does a lot of knowledge translation work. And through that, I was introduced to, 
you know, this almost overlooked field of uh, intervening uh, on behavior rather than intervening with a specific food. So we have this huge mountains of research on uh, obesity, for example, on the effects of fruits and vegetables on this health outcome and that health outcome. But we don't really have much research on, okay, what can we do to make these people or these families, you know, eat more fruits and vegetables or eat less sugar, etc. And um, that's, that's, again, where I found the Guelph Family Health Study. And that's where I decided, you know, maybe I, I, I'm less interested in the, in the mice than the humans. And so I was more interested in, you know, people work and more, I wouldn't say more important, but just more uh, current work rather than work that would be uh, useful, uh, you know, as preclinical and then clinical and then postclinical, etc. Like I was just more interested in this behavioral aspect of nutrition, um, which, you know, I found out during my undergrad and then my master's just uh, strengthened the belief that this is what I'm interested in. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I love hearing about um, what inspired people to pursue the things that they do. And you just mentioned your master's work. So I was wondering, before we jump into what you're doing for your PhD, can you tell us a bit about what you did for your master's research? Mm -hmm. So in my master's, I found myself as uh, part of the dairy research group, uh, which is led by doctors Buckles and Newton, which is, yes, under the Guafame Hall study. Uh, so with my time there, we did two novel studies. One study looked at data from the family food skills study. And we wanted to see where do families buy their dairy and plant-based dairy alternatives from? And what do they buy exactly? And so we looked at receipts that we collected from the families. And we found out that all families buy, you know, cheese and yogurt. Uh, you know, most families buy cow's milk and, you know, one third of the families buy what we call plant-based alternatives. And th so these include, you know, things like soy milk and almond milk. But more interestingly, and this is the novel part, we actually, you know, wanted to see where are families buying these uh, dairy products because there is implications on cost and implications on, uh, you know, purchasing habits when when it comes to where they choose to buy their dairy from and so we found that most families buy from what we call big box stores and so these are things like walmart and costco you know the implications of that is there's a likelihood that they prefer just lower prices and or, or purchasing bulk or that most people buy from big box stores so they don't really go to the discount stores etc and um it's just it's it's important to know that because if there were to be an intervention targeting purchasing of these products, now we kind of know that we would it would be more effective to target the big box stores rather than the smaller ones because we know that most families buy from there. So the other novel piece is more qualitative. And so um, we spoke with families from the Guelph Family Hall study about their dairy habits. And so we did focus groups and you know, we asked them, what are things that make it easier to, to purchase dairy, to offer dairy to their kids? Uh, and then the novel piece for that is we also asked about plant-based dairy alternatives. And from these focus groups, we were able to compare uh, parents' opinions about both types of products. 
And so what we found was in general, people thought, you know, dairy and plant-based dairy are nutritional. Uh, specifically, they thought plant-based dairy alternatives provided more diversity to the diet. Um, it was, you know, more ethically, uh, like to them, it was more ethical to buy plant-based dairy alternatives over cow's milk. And it was more environmentally friendly. As for barriers, it was very clear that uh, parents were were aware of the sugar content content of these products, which is which was good to hear for us. Um, and some parents were worried about you know things like antibiotics and hormones and dairy products, but also parents were worried about pesticides and plant based dairy alternatives. So it's not like they could just go to plant based dairy alternatives with no concerns. So some parents had concerns about both products. Um, now, dairy in Canada is pretty clean. Um, I would wager the uh, pesticide residue in plant-based dairy alternatives is also extremely small. But it's just it's just important to know what, what people believe and what information they're exposed to. Uh, and that way we know how they decide to purchase these products and, you know, the, the comparison of both products. I, I, I think it is really interesting to know kind of what people are thinking about different food products so that we can kind of create um, knowledge mobilization initiatives that kind of target, um, you know, kind of explain some of their questions, essentially, which is, which is really good. So as part of the Guelph Family Health Study, I often hear uh, a lot about weeknight supper savers, um, (laughs) this project, and I, and I, you know, I hate to admit it, but I actually don't know a whole lot about it and uh, what's going on. So if you don't mind, maybe sharing a little bit about the weeknight supper saver study to uh, to me and Sabrina and everyone listening, that would be great. <laughs> yes. Uh, so as you said, part of my PhD work is this weeknight supper saver study. So the weeknight supper saver study is the Guelph Family Health Studies way of continuing our work on food waste. So we've done some research on food waste and we found out that you know, families in Canada, in Guelph specifically, you know, they waste about five kilograms of, of, of food a week. Um, and, you know, most of that, about three kilograms comes from what we call avoidable food waste. So this is food that could have been eaten, but wasn't. So to, context- to contextualize this problem, uh, overall in Canada, so in total, uh, 60% of the food produced and I'm just reading the stats right now because I don't have it memorized off the top of my head, but 60% of the food produced goes to waste. So this adds up to 35 million metric tons. One third of that is avoidable. So this is edible food that gets lost in production, in distribution, in manufacturing, and from households. Um, so in households, that makes up 14%. So of the, of the big piece of food waste, 14% comes from households, which is a pretty big chunk. And that's where uh, we we can focus as the Guelph Family Health Study. But just before I go into uh, the weeknight supper savers, this, this um, food waste problem adds up to uh, a environmental problem because there is greenhouse gas emissions that come from such food waste, specifically 56 million tons of CO2 equivalents. And overall, as, as a, just to put a money label on it, almost $50 billion goes to waste. So it's, it's a pretty major problem in Canada and globally. 
And that's why we wanted to uh, create an intervention that targets food waste specifically in families. And so we, we conceived what we call the weeknight supper saver study. And you can tell from the name that, you know, we're saving dinners from going to waste. Um, and yeah, we, we, we designed an intervention and implemented it in 2020. Amar, can you, yes. before we move on to uh, the details of the study, which I'm really interested to hear about, mm -hmm. um, can you give me an example of like, you're talking about avoidable waste. Um, so I'm assuming there's also unavoidable food waste. Can you just yes. give me just an example of, of each of those? Excellent question. Yeah. Uh, I always assume, you know, people know what I'm talking about, but that's always a wrong assumption. Um, so avoidable waste is waste that comes from, say, a piece of apple that could have been eaten, but wasn't for several reasons. So one reason could be that it was rotten. Other reasons was it was just thrown away. Whereas unavoidable would be things like banana peels, which really no one eats, or potato peels, which are kind of avoidable, kind of unavoidable, because they are edible, but at the same time, not really commonly edible. Um, but, you know, another example of unavoidable that is more clearly unavoidable would be you know, as I said, banana peels, but even things like chicken bones and meat bones, which really no one eats. And so there's that distinction between avoidable and unavoidable. But from my example, it seems like, uh, so households waste, as I said, three kilograms of avoidable food waste a week, and that, that is out of five kilograms in total. But as far as the total food waste in Canada, we see that only one third of it is avoidable. So two thirds is unavoidable food waste. And so we see that distinction between, you know, whole line food waste that is mostly unavoidable, uh, specifically two thirds. But in households, we see that most of the food waste is actually avoidable. Great. Thanks for giving those examples, Amar. And so what did you find in the weeknight supper saver study? Mm -hmm. um, so with the weeknight supper saver study, the intervention was family focused. Um, and so in 2020, we recruited families, obviously, from Guelph. Uh, we did our initial data conduction, which was surveys and what we call waste audits. And then be, and then COVID hit. And so we had to postpone the, the study until later. But then we found out that COVID is actually affecting food waste in families and food habits. And so it was clear for us that you know, the, the initial data collection was uh, would not be representative if we implemented the intervention in the middle of the summer uh, and then the post-intervention data collection. And so we did another round of data collection with our amazingly gracious families uh, in, in August. And we used that data to also look at the impact of COVID-19 on food waste. Uh, but we also used that data as a base, as, as almost like a second baseline for the intervention, which we implemented uh, in September. And so the intervention itself uh, encourages families to plan their food uh, habits, specifically their shopping and their meals. And so we gave them tools for that. Um, you know, we sent text message reminders. We gave them a veggie scrubber as part of the what we call the weeknight supper savers toolkit. Um, and this veggie scrubber was intended to dis or not really discourage, but just encourage not peeling potatoes, for example, 
because they are edible, but just they just need to be cleaned well. We gave them a child-friendly knife uh, just to encourage involving children in the kitchen. We gave them uh, our cookbook, which is the Rock What You've Got cookbook, a cookbook specifically designed to target food waste. And so it has uh, recipes such as, you know, empty your fridge recipe, which you know, whatever in your fridge goes, and two-in-one recipes where one meal's leftovers can become another meal. And this way we're encouraging people to use their leftovers. Um, we also gave the families, uh, we, we also conducted a cooking class with the families. And this was online because it was during COVID. And so we did an online cooking class that went through the same recipe with all the families. And um, this was intended to familiarize them with, uh, you know, how to reduce food waste while cooking. So we gave them tips and tricks for that. And we familiarized them with the tools that we gave them. And we almost, you know, uh, in encouraged them again to uh, reduce their food waste. The last piece was text messages, which were intended to remind the families uh, to you know check the fruits and vegetables at the, in the back of the fridge and uh, you know giving them more information about the problem of food waste to encourage reducing food waste. So Amar, thanks for sharing. I'm actually really interested in waste audits. What what happens during a waste audit? Mm -hmm. I have the perfect answer for that because I actually did those waste audits back in March. Um, back in March 2020. <laughs> So, so, waste so not audits. hot garbage. It was cold garbage. <laughs> it was cold garbage, yes. <laughs> Thankfully, it was very cold. Um, so waste audits is one of the objective ways of measuring food waste at the household level. So some researchers use surveys and self-report and like diaries and stuff. But um, waste audits, we actually go to those households and we collect their garbage. We collect their recycling and we collect their organics. So it's almost like we are the municipality and we're the ones collecting the waste. But rather than it going to the dump, there is one checkpoint that it needs to go through, which is us. So this checkpoint, we measure out, we weigh out the garbage. You know, how much, how much did this household produce? We weigh out the recycling. And then for the organic, because we're interested in food waste, we separate out, you know, going back to what, what I said earlier in the beginning, we separate out avoidable from unavoidable food waste. And so we physically go through the organic waste, wearing gloves and PPE. So it's not like we're just going raw, but um, we, go, we go through this food, this waste, and we separate out, you know, avoidable food and vegetables. So uh, for just to give an example, say I, I find a piece of clementine that is whole, I would peel that. And the peel would go in the unavoidable food and vegetable basket, but then the actual clementine would go into the avoidable food and vegetable. Another example would be, say, I see a chicken thigh in, in the organic. I would separate it from the bone and put the bone in unavoidable uh, waste and put the actual meat in avoidable and so physically, we did that for four weeks from all the families we had. Um, and this way, we have an average over a month. Um, but then sadly, with COVID, we actually, I wouldn't say sadly, I would say fortunately in COVID, because it was in the summer, we couldn't do research as students 
like physically because uh, there were restrictions from the university. And so we had to get a third party, which, you know, they, they, they did the waste audits themselves. And so I didn't have to go get my hands dirty in the summer when food waste is pretty smelly. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like yeah, this very... is what waste audits are. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. No, it sounds like a very glamorous job. <laughs> um, can you tell us what you found, um, what the impact of COVID-19 was on families' uh, food waste? So in the beginning of the pandemic, some some studies came out saying that you know, food waste is increasing because families were cooking more, cooking more at home. And so we expected to see an increase in total food waste. But in fact, we saw very little difference between uh, pre and post food waste as, as far as total goes. So before COVID hit, it was 4.82 kilograms a week on average. And after it was 4.85 kilograms a week, which is very little uh, as far as difference goes. Uh, within the types of food waste, though, we did see an increase in what we call unavoidable food and vegetable waste. Um, but we also saw a decrease in avoidable food waste. And so it's almost like families were becoming more efficient. So that, yes, they were cooking more so that they were producing more unavoidable waste. Um, but they were more efficient. So they were wasting less of the avoidable part. So eating more leftovers, uh, storing food better. Etc. Amar, it's really interesting those findings uh, for COVID nineteen because I know my family definitely was kicking around the house more, and we probably ate more. Though uh, I'm not sure if we actually ate more fruits and vegetables. I'd like to think so, so I'm going to go ahead and say yes for that. But my <laughs> guess is, being Italian, I probably just ate more cheese. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm interested too. You talked about the intervention and kind of working with families to kind of reduce food waste. I'm actually wondering, were there any results that you'd like to share from that study or from that intervention? For sure, yes. Um, so again, just to go back to the timeline a bit so we don't confuse our listeners, uh, we, we finished our you know post-COVID data collection. Uh, we finished that in August, and then we implemented the uh, intervention in October. And so again, the intervention was four weeks. We gave the families a toolkit. We gave them a cooking class and we sent them text messages for the uh, duration of the intervention. And then after that, we did data collection. So our weeknight supper saver study is only a pilot study. So we can't really uh, look at the effect of the intervention so much. But what we, what we did find was that families were very motivated to reduce their food waste and they loved the program. They loved the, you know, just to give an example, some families loved the veggie scrubber and they told us. Some families just loved to think, to notice how much food they waste and to decrease it, which was really lovely to see. And other families during the cooking class were just, like they were just having a blast in the cooking class, especially involving the children and some children did everything themselves, which again was amazing to see. Um, and so, as our, you know, to, just to get more sciency, uh, for our primary outcome from such a pilot study, we are interested in whether the intervention is what we call acceptable. So, do the families enjoy going through this intervention? And turns out, yes, they loved it. But we also had secondary outcomes, and that would include the food waste piece. 
and the food skills of those families. So um, what we found that families decreased their uh, avoidable food and vegetable again. So it was decreased by 43%. And they, they, incre- they decreased their unavoidable other ways. So again, these are things like uh, chicken bone, etc. Um, and so it could be just that, you know, uh, it could be the intervention. We can't really say for sure because, again, it's a pilot study. But it seems that families became more efficient, at, um, you know, uh, more efficient at using up their fruits and vegetables in the household. As far as uh, skills that the families have, uh, it was clear that families reported being more confident in reducing their food waste after the intervention. And another piece is that the children became a bit more knowledgeable about food waste. And so we asked them a question about what best before date means. Um, And we found that almost all the children post-intervention answered that question correctly. Um, And so the, the correct answer, if, if, you know, you guys are not familiar, but the correct answer to that is, you know, it's not that the food should be thrown away because it's you know rotten or cannot be eaten. The best before date is the date where, uh, you know, the food is freshest. So after that date, the food is not as fresh as it was, but it could still be eaten. So you don't need to throw it away right after best before date. And so overall, just to backtrack a bit, yes, we did see decreases in food waste. And we saw some improvements in, uh, you know, confidence of families and knowledge of families about food waste. But the outcome we were interested in is whether the families would enjoy being in this intervention. Thanks for sharing, Amar. It certainly sounds like, I mean, families were participating during the pandemic. So I'm sure it was a fun activity for the family to participate in together. And I'm curious, uh, what do you think are the implications of this study and what what the next steps in this area of research might be? So clearly there is a need for such an intervention and uh, there is at least some motivation to be part of such an intervention, as we saw from the, from the families we had and how motivated and how much they enjoyed, uh, you know, being part of this intervention and thinking about their own food waste. And so clearly there is a gap in, uh, you know, communication from the government about food waste and, uh, you know, programs that target food waste within the community. And so the implications for our findings is that we just need to implement such interventions in the community already and, and try to, you know, tackle this problem of food waste uh, at the household level and then the other levels as well. Uh, so the next steps for us because again, this is a pilot study, we can't really go ahead and say this program is effective and you know implement it in the community. We can't really say that. But what we can say is clearly this program is feasible and acceptable. And so uh, we need a randomized controlled trial where we implement the program with a segment of families and then we compare it to a control group that doesn't receive anything. And we see whether and whether in fact the program is effective at reducing food waste. The reason uh, I say that is because uh, for our pilot study, we didn't really have a comparison. So the changes we saw in food waste 
may as well be because uh, we're comparing it to August where kids were not at school, but in, in, in October, November, they were. And so we, you know, the difference was simply because of seasonality of, of food and uh, changes in, uh, f- you know, food skills and food, food waste behavior related to the season. That's why we would need a, a big, a bigger sample of families and a comparison that doesn't receive a program just to see whether the changes are truly due to the intervention. Now, I think you did this um, like via video, right? Like, I think you did the, is that correct? Like, uh, like a, on a, an online platform? for the... Yeah, so the, the cooking classes were online, yes. I'd be interested if you were to take this to the next level and do a bigger intervention i'm curious as to whether you would still want to do it would you still was it successful would you still want to do it on the video platform or would you actually want to do the cooking classes in person that's an excellent question um so in in the post-intervention survey we actually asked the families do you think you would prefer in-person cooking classes or online cooking classes and it seemed like 70 percent answered in person and so there's a there's a high likelihood that um, it could work better even as an in-person cooking class. And that was our initial intention. We wanted to do in-person and that way the families could sit together, they could eat together, they could meet each other. And it would just become a more social piece rather than us you know, just going through information with families online. The other pieces, maybe families prefer in-person simply because of pandemic fatigue. I mean, it was... We did ask in October, November, so uh, there's a possibility that people are just tired of zooming in on meetings and and, and events. Yeah, so it's hard we to know. To do an in person, a video, and a control. <laughs> that that would be that would be perfect for everyone because yes, seventy percent answered they preferred in person, but thirty percent said they prefer online cooking classes. So it could be that it just fit their schedule better. They don't need to commute to the place where we have the cooking class. You don't need to think about, you know, childcare and while they're doing the cooking class. So, uh, I mean, there's there's uh, there needs to be something for every type of family, especially when we think about, you know, once life goes back to normal, there will be extracurriculars and, um, you know, they, they will be busy. And so whether they can attend cooking classes will be a big question for us, especially in-person ones. Maybe online will be a bit easier. Great. Thanks, Samar, for sharing all about the weeknight supper saver study. It's really interesting. Um, we've been asking some of our guests as a fun closeout question um, what their favorite memory from working with the Guelph Family Health Study is. So do you have something to share? Definitely not the waste audits. I, I will tell you that. <laughs> yeah, that probably wouldn't have been mine either, right? <laughs> if I had done those. I mean, okay, it was fun to just kind of get your hands dirty and almost like you're playing with clay, but it's food waste. <laughs> But no, uh, uh, so I will say that this pandemic and working from home has really made me appreciate the time we spent together, which, you know, I found out that I was almost taking taking for granted. Um, But my one specific memory was uh, Eli's defense for his PhD. And so that so Eli was was a PhD student at the Gulf Family Study just for our listeners and um, he finished his PhD in the beginning of my master's. Um, and just just going to his defense 
and seeing the Guelph Amiral study there, like all the all the all the graduate students, all the undergraduate students, all the faculty that are involved in the Guelph Amiral study, you know, I just got to see them there and saw how supportive they are, and it just made me. I just remember like it clicking in my head that you know what this is the place I want to be. This is the this is you know I'm in the right place right now. Well, that's really nice. That's a very nice memory, Amar. Um, so Sabrina and I would just like to say thank you, a big thank you for joining us on the Healthy Habits Happy Homes podcast. I think we learned a lot about food uh, waste and and audits and kind of some really cool programs going on about supporting families to reduce their waste. Which, I think is really interesting and, and definitely a goal of, of my family as well is uh, finding ways to reduce our waste. I think it just feels good to know that you're not throwing out uh, food that could have otherwise been eaten. So thank you for sharing all of that with us and uh, we were happy to have you on our podcast. Thank you for having me so much. Yeah.